I'm Hannah. I'm Sheena. And I'm Lori. And this is Cemetery Row. That's I as who as I could get right now, guys. Yes. It's been a long month. As um, I just want to apologize in advance. I'm a little stuffy headed this week. Um, so, yeah, you're getting what you're getting on my end. <laughs> you're getting some really tired, possibly sick mm-hmm. ladies who love Halloween. So, exactly. Yes. What was it that you said last week, Hannah? Something about three white ladies three white ladies with opinions (laughs) yes three white ladies with opinions close to halloween so we are doing a spooky episode um so this is your halloween extravaganza if you're sad that this is only one episode please don't be because we're going to extend it to next the next episode because uh spooky season is not just a season it is a state of being and that is where (laughs) way of life yes yes um a couple of points of news before we get started um i have talked before about my true crime tours coming up on halloween weekend at elmwood cemetery they are both sold out so i'm doing another tour saturday november 6th at 2 30 p.m in the afternoon and if you want to join me for that that would be awesome uh you can go to elmwood cemetery in memphis's um Facebook page or their website, elmwoodcemetery.org to get tickets. And I also wanted to give a shout out to a brand new listener, Miss Molly Monsters on uh, Instagram. What a great name. Yeah. Um, She sent us a really rad uh, message and shared a couple of links about um, Highland Park's uh, final resting place for hundreds of unidentified remains. And a story about the pets of Mount Hope Cemetery. So we'll share those links in our show notes. Thank you very much for reaching out, Miss Molly Monsters. We love having you here. Thank you. Thank you. And please tell us about your local, like, haunted cemetery, your local famous grave, your Mm -hmm. local whatever. We love to hear about that kind of stuff. Yes. Heck yeah. Email us at cemeteryropod at gmail.com, or you can hit us up on socials. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cemetery Row Pod. Yay. Yay. Had to put that plug in there early today. We did, we did the be- the end at the beginning. This yes. we'll, we'll do it again at the end. Yeah. Don't worry. No, don't you worry. <laughs> no need to skip back. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so this week we are talking about spooky stories. Ooh. It's a spooky grab bag. <laughs> yes. So um, I'm kicking it off this week, and I wanted to talk about a actual um, ghostly experience that I had as a little baby reporter. Oh, I've not Go heard on. this story. Yes. So picture it. October 2006, Waverly Plantation in West Point, Mississippi. Um, I am in this plantation late at night interviewing the lead investigator of a local paranormal research group when all of a sudden the rope on the nearby stanchions begins to swing all by itself. (laughs) Okay, so that's just to get you get your appetite going. That's your appetizer. Um, (laughs) Derek, please be inserting spooky noises throughout this. Thank you. (laughs) 
I don't know what you can. Well, you can have some. Oh, you can have horses in this one, Lori. Ooh. Um, <laughs> anyway. All right. So I'm going to tell you the history of the Waverly Plantation and then tell you about my experience there. So the Waverly Plantation is 10 miles outside of West Point, depending on what um, source you hear it from. You may hear that it's in West Point or that it's in Columbus. Basically, it's about a third of the way down the state near the Alabama line, and it overlooks the Tom Bigby River. Okay, so, so West Point also has a strip club called The Pony. Yes, it does. With a giant chrome horse outside. That is, yes, it does. I'm not going to say anatomically correct, but there are some pretty close to it anatomical anomalies on said <laughs> chrome horse statue outside yes. the pony. Yes, you can see his sheath and his balls. <laughs> Thank you for those medical terms, <laughs> The correct terminology. It. Please okay. continue. I just had to get that off my chest. <laughs> of course, she did. <laughs> okay, so uh, the home was constructed by that was a ghost by the way yeah no something happened at my desk something dropped i don't know what it, <laughs> it was, was a ghost so, yeah had to be the home was constructed by george hampton young for some reason they called him colonel he was never a colonel but you know sometimes white men can just say hey call me this and people will listen to him and call him <laughs> especially if they have money well, right. he did. Uh, he was a lawyer and a member of the Georgia State Legislature. And yes, he owned people. Uh -oh. um, he and his wife, Lucy, and their children moved to Lowndes County, Mississippi in 1833 in the hope of buying some land to start a new farm because he came from a farming family. Uh, he, Mississippi had basically just stolen slash acquired <laughs> some land from the Chickasaws. So he uh, basically was like opportunity and he went and bought 50,000 acres. Jesus. So, yeah. Georgia's enslaved people. I'm not going to call him Colonel. Okay. Georgia's enslaved people built the mansion, which was completed sometime around 1852. It's a Greek revival style two-story mansion with a huge octagonal cupola that adds on an additional two stories hmm. it is so cool on the inside i mean it is a masterpiece really when you walk in you're like in one big octagonal octagonal space with self-supporting curved stairways that go up to the upper levels and then the rooms branch off from there um, an original gas-fired chandelier hangs from the center of the cupola, and there's a long walkway lined with shrub shrubbery leading up to the house. So it has this very dramatic entrance, like takes a long time to kind of walk down that path, and then you get there, and the front of it's really pretty, and then the inside's really pretty, and all that. It's pretty, but spooky. The mansion, named for Sir Walter Scott's novel, Waverly, which I'm sure was great, um, was a <laughs> self-sustaining community with gardens, livestock, and orchards. Uh, it had a swimming pool and a, bath, and a bathhouse. Oh. It had an ice house, a cotton gin, and a brick kiln. And later it had its own lumber mill, hat manufacturing operation, and leather tannery. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, it was, this was a huge amount of land and a huge plantation. 
Um, they believe that the first American-made saddle blankets were made there, and the first fox hunt association was formed in the mansion's library in 1893. Well, oh, that's them. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Who mm. knew? That's a, a cool thing, I guess. Um, the entire <laughs> property also contained homes for like smaller plantation owners, like his sons. And of course there were enslaved people living in and around Waverly. And so they had their own houses and, and structures as well. So George's wife, Lucy died the same year that the house was completed. She was just 52. And because we don't know exactly when the house was finally finished, we're not sure if she lived in there or not, but Lucy and George had 10 kids. Oh Jesus. my God. Bless her heart. Um, several of them grew up and, and married in the mansion's parlor. They held weekly dances there, and the neighborhood would just gather around the plantation. <laughs> um, I did watch, the mansion was uh, featured on an episode of the old HGTV show, If Walls Could Talk. And they showed off a um, invitation to a complimentary masquerade held around oh, Christmas wow. 1865. So, you know, fancy. What is I, a complimentary masquerade? I wonder, I guess just free? Yeah. I, don't know. I don't know. That's weird. I thought it was weird phrasing, but I'm like, yeah, well, I also times. love that they are like, if these, it's very close to the abortion movie is all yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. So um, all six of George's sons fought in the Civil War. One of them, Beverly Daniel, died shortly after being wounded at Gettysburg. And George and his daughter stayed at the plantation during the war. And of course, as you can imagine, the house became a hospital for the Confederate wounded. And after the war, George welcomed many homeless uh, local families to live at Waverly until they could get back on their feet. Everything I've read and heard was like, oh, he was such a nice man. And I'm like, cool, ask, to, ask his enslaved people. But, yeah. yeah. I no. mean, he had fucking people and he fought for the Confederacy. Yeah. So, you know. So, you know. You know. Eat a bag of dicks, George. <laughs> right. Like, I'm sure he, he had nice. I'm sure he had his moments, but. But anyway. So George kicks it in 1880 and the <laughs> house is passed down to his children. Uh, two of his sons, William, known as Captain Billy. I don't know if he was a captain. I think oh, he was because he did fight in the war. And George Valerius, or Val, Ooh. were bachelors and they moved in. Mm -hmm. Bachelors? Um, well, mm -hmm. there's only one way to say this, and I couldn't figure out a nice way to say it. So this is what my notes say, literally. Captain Billy was a man whore. Um, <laughs> he literally, he just wanted to party and 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 have s relations with women and that's what he did he did not want to settle down uh -huh. and val meanwhile was too busy gambling and hosting cockfights in the front yard oh, to get so married so uh val died first followed by captain billy who died in 1913 so the uh family was sort of like well the main line has died out i guess they didn't want to live there so the house sat in disrepair for decades and it was restored by the robert snow family starting in 62. that's 1962 obviously but just in <laughs> right. case just in uh, case yeah 
The Snow family um, apparently were antique dealers, and so they had some items in the home that were given back uh, by the young descendants, and they, um, or also they um, purchased some that were originally in the estate, so they were able to kind of put a lot of the original stuff back in there. Um, so... The Snow family did eventually open it as a house museum. And when I was there, it was a house museum. The Snows sold it to a new family in 2018. And I'm not really sure the status of it right now. Um, some things I saw online looked like you could go tour it, but some other things said, well, they're renovating some more of it. So it's, you may not be able to tour if they're under some heavy renovations. So I don't know if you really are like dead set on going, please do your Googling. I'm not doing it for you. <laughs> anyway, the home was declared a national historic landmark in 1973, and it is on the National Register of Historic Places. So who is haunting Waverly Plantation? So there are two little girls who haunt the mansion um, these young girls died at Waverly in the 1860s and 1870s. They are suspected to be the grandchildren of a neighbor of the young family. One of them died of diphtheria during the Civil War. The other girl was just 18 months old, and the stories on her are different yet similar. Um, some stories say she fell down the stairs and broke her neck. The other story says that she got her head caught in the spindles on the staircase and oh. broke her neck that way. Oh, Either God. way, she broke her neck and died. I don't know how, but those are the two stories. Um, so both of them supposedly haunt the house, but the littlest one calls out for her mama. Oh. Uh, you'll hear her, yeah, um, call out for her mama all the time. And then they say they've seen an outline not really an outline, but like an imprint of a child's body on a bed upstairs. No. And there's also a Confederate soldier that haunts the mansion. Um, of course something... there is. Of Let course. a soul stay in limbo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some <laughs> people think it was Beverly Young, one of the sons of George Young, or it could have been any of the men who died, you know, when it was used as a hospital, we don't know. But he often appears behind people in mirrors or other reflections. Perf. Well, that's fucking creepy. Terrifying, <laughs> yes. Um, it's also said that the parlor is the most active room and you hear music and laughter coming from there. That makes sense since weddings took place there. Right. Um, they have also seen a... I guess it's a ghost of a horse and a ghost <laughs> of a man all in one. I don't know. Um, you see a, a man centaur? riding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. They see a man riding horseback on the grounds and no one is not really sure who that is. So let's get into my experience there back to 2006. So I had just graduated from journalism school that May, and I started my career as a reporter for the Northeast Mississippi Daily Journal in Tupelo. And me being spooky till the end, I was bound and determined to cover something spooky for Halloween. So I found a local ghost hunting group called North Mississippi Afterlife. It was made up entirely of women. And I asked them, like, can I go along with y'all on an investigation? And they were like, yeah, we're going to go to Waverly sometime in October. So just come along with us. So I'm like, cool, gotcha. So 
I know that group did break up a couple of years later. Um, and a, a friend of mine who was in that group started another group called PRISM or Paranormal Research Investigative Society of Mississippi. I don't okay. know if she still still runs that group, but I know she still goes ghost hunting. I went ghost hunting with her group or or her at one point, way later on. Uh -huh. We went to a jail. Either way, that's a whole nother story. <laughs> okay, so uh, my photographer, uh, shout out to Desti Lee. She was my photographer. I think she listens to the show. I hope she does. If she does, hi, Desti. I love you. I miss you. Um, <laughs> we were assigned to go down there and cover this. So we met at Waverly Plantation late one night. I forget how late it was, but it was pretty late. And the mansion is off in the woods by itself, sort of. You know, it's off the main road, so it's pretty creepy. And um, while we were waiting outside, we heard some howling, which was really weird. And when we went inside, um, the two folks who worked at Waverly and gave us tours, which I don't know if they're still there, um, Melissa Rodriguez and Todd Childs, they were like, hey, did y'all hear those howls? We've never heard anything like that before. So that was a little spooky. You had a welcome committee. Apparently, <laughs> yeah. And then what was really cool, and I'm gonna include photos of this because thank you to my former coworker reporter, Jenna. She managed to track down the photos that we took. Um, Desti had this great idea. It was, I mean, it's hard to take photos at night outside. <laughs> so she had this really cool idea to run in front of the mansion carrying flashlights and i guess that she used like a slow shutter speed or something i'm not a photographer clearly <laughs> and so it looked like you had these lights like dancing in front of the mansion so it oh, i love those pictures so much so i'll have those on our social anyway so back to the spookiness so the paranormal team arrived and they set up their equipment we met with melissa and todd to go over you know what they have experienced there where the hot spots all that good stuff so then they shut the lights off and the investigation began right so the cool thing about waverly is you know these old antebellum homes don't have any kind of air conditioning and it was so obvious i'd never heard a more quiet house in my life like it was so quiet had a mouse you know i don't know whispered we would have heard it you know uh -huh. so the team broke off into smaller teams and they investigate different rooms and Desti and I followed them around we took notes on what they were doing um Desti was taking these really creepy photos where you could just barely kind of see them and see the room they're in and it, they're really cool I'm going to share those on social um but each team team member did have some technical glitches like the cameras turned on and off by themselves or they ran low on batteries even though they of course had charged the batteries before the investigation and that's a thing that a lot of um, paranormal investigators say is that ghosts will drain your batteries um someone did catch the uh, face in a mirror um on a photo i don't have that picture but that's interesting considering what we learned about the civil war ghost earlier mm -hmm. but the part that I still, I remember this clear as day and it, it still freaks me out. It was much, much later that night. I knew they were probably getting ready to wrap up. This had to have been midnight or so, I guess. I can't remember. 
I wanted to get an interview with the lead investigator, Tina Jones. So the two of us went into a room by ourselves to do that interview. And every room had these stanchions with red velvet ropes to block off, you know, like the furniture. So guests could only go so far into the room. And we were near the rope, but we weren't super close to the rope. And to set it up for you, Tina was facing me and the inside of the room, I was facing the doorway so I could see anyone coming in or out. And Tina was one of those people who talks with her hands. So her hands were up here talking, you know, making gestures. And a thing they taught us in journalism school was, you know, don't keep your head down while you're taking notes. Look at your interview we <laughs> you know i sound so professional yes um, no we engage with your subject yes and so i was trying to keep my eyes on her and i had you know the journalism notepad or the reporter's notebook in one hand and a pencil in the other so i'm just kind of standing there looking at her and writing and flipping you just you get on a habit and you do that out of habit and it's very easy to do but we're mid-interview and all of a sudden we both feel something hitting our knees. And she says, something's hitting my leg. And we look and that rope was swinging back and forth. And she's like, I didn't hit it. And I'm like, I didn't either. Like, and no one was in the room. I didn't see anyone come in, come out. I would have seen them. There um, was no air conditioning, no kind of breeze coming through the room. So all of a sudden though, it's swinging and all of a sudden it speeds up and starts going really fast and it stops and i mean dead stop no slowing down it was just it was the weirdest thing i've ever seen it was like in a movie and uh, both, I, would, I would have been out of there faster <laughs> Woo, it was no it was really weird like i i mean it was just like i was watching something in a movie and had i been watching that in a movie i would have been like well they faked that obviously but this was real this is right in front of my eyes and we both kind of laughed and we were like that was weird <laughs> <laughs> so the team did catch a couple of like evps they did catch that one creepy picture and then we had the rope uh incident that happened with us so they did the full in investigation and enjoyed it and i think they went back a couple more times so yeah waverly plantations haunted um to discuss the cemetery part of the story George and Lucy Young and almost all of their children are buried at the George Hampton Young Family Cemetery, not far from Waverly. It looks like it's in the boonies, so I don't know that, you know, don't go try to find it unless maybe you're on the property or you have permission because I, I really don't know. I didn't go out there that night, obviously, and if something's howling in the woods, you know, it'll probably howl at you there too um there are uh people from neighboring families who were buried um out there too and it looks like the latest burial was in the 1950s so again it's it's very much very old um beverly who i mentioned earlier dying in the civil war was initially buried at cypress hill cemetery in new york but was disinterred a couple of days later and sent to mississippi um George and Lucy's daughter, Sarah, is buried at Odd Fellows Rest Cemetery in Aberdeen. That, listen, I've <laughs> got to do something on that. When you want to talk about a weird cemetery, 
it's one of my favorites it's so weird and then her sister lucy is buried at friendship cemetery in columbus that one is also weird but columbus is kind of bad on crime so be careful being out there yeah <laughs> and that, that whole and gentlemen, part of mississippi just don't go chomping around in it. it's questionable it's, it's it's the golden triangle what do you expect yeah yeah, yeah. so that is my story of haunted waverly plantation Ooh. Ooh, that was awesome. some scary stuff uh yeah beware ropes they'll hit you all right so it's me now right yes, yes hannah all right excited death hannah let's do this shit picture it 1987 <laughs> <laughs> miami <laughs> ruthie may mccoy was 52 in april of 1987 Ruthie lived in the Abbott Homes projects on the west side of Chicago. Ruthie wasn't exactly easygoing. She had several mental illnesses, including paranoia. But in the Chicago projects of the 1980s, paranoia might not have been a bad thing. The high-rise housing projects were a monument to mismanagement and neglect. Elevators broke down, PCP and crack were popular recreational drugs, and hallways and stairwells were quite literally dark and full of terrors. The apartments <laughs> were small and not well-appointed, but for thousands of poor, especially African-Americans in Chicago, they were home. On the night of April 22nd, 1987, Ruthie May called the police. She began, I'm a resident at 1440 West 13th Street and some people next door are totally tearing this down, you know. What are they doing, ma'am? Asked the dispatcher. McCoy's response is unintelligible on the tape, but the dispatcher caught the gist. They went to break in? He asked. Yeah, they throwed the cabinet down. The dispatcher asked, from where? McCoy says, I'm in the projects. I'm on the other side. You can reach, can reach my bathroom. They want to come in through the bathroom. Think about where you've heard that before. Mm-hmm. What movie that might have sparked? The police arrived 10 minutes later, and when they didn't get a response, they tried a spare key from the office complex office from the office complex office the apartment <laughs> complex office it's been a long day yes no luck none of her neighbors would answer the door a little less than 45 minutes later the police left so this of course was, they did yeah i mean yep. why not um this is about 9 45 ish at night the next night the cops were called again this time by deborah lasley a friend and neighbor of ruthie may who was concerned that their regular morning and afternoon visits hadn't happened the cops arrived again this time with chicago housing authority security guards the police were ready to break down the door but the cha security guards who are as useful as tits on a bore in this story <laughs> argued against it the tenant could sue they said who's gonna guard the broken door they asked the cops shrugged their shoulders and left again <sighs> deborah yes, was they did <laughs> yes they did there's a whole lot of fuckery here Chicago police in the 80s fuckery flats? <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? I cannot. Deborah wasn't deterred, and on the afternoon of the 24th, she went to the apartment office. An official from the apartments finally arrived with a carpenter to drill open the lock. Ruthie Mae McCoy was found in a pool of her own blood, shot 
four times. Oh my god. The killers had broken in through the medicine cabinet. The murder didn't garner much attention in the way of headlines, another death in the projects. And the Abbott projects had a particularly gruesome reputation with infants being thrown from windows and teenagers shoved down open elevator shafts. Jeez. A janitor interviewed by the Chicago Reader, um, actually three of my source stories were by this great author at the Chicago Reader named Steve Bulgira. You should check out all of his stuff. It was fantastic. The janitor said, you get desensitized by what goes on here every day. It's animalism over here. That's the prevailing life condition of the people. Animalism. Where you worry about those who are stronger and you care nothing about those who are weaker. And that was my dog, Hockey Nalooki. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a ghost. Yes, it was it's a ghost. It's a ghost dog. <laughs> it was. It was absolutely... Oh, she's going to do it again. All right, there we go. Oh, Tabby. <laughs> Look, Tabby's she's she's having a time right now. Oh. Um, and the novelty of breaking through the medicine cabinet wasn't altogether shocking for the residents either. Rapists, robbers, and other criminals had been using this as a point of entry for at least a year before Ruthie May's murder. The Abbott homes had been initially built as an island with no through roads in the hopes of offering open space for the residents. Instead, it turned the complex into an isolated square of crime and fear. Most of the residents made no use of the open space, choosing to stay safe in their apartments, or try to at least. Ruthie Mae McCoy did not have an easy road. She was born in Hughes, Arkansas, which is a backwater hellhole, as one of eight children and moved with her family to Chicago as a young girl during the Great Migration. Uh, there's a very good book called The Warmth of Other Sons for more information about the move of black families from the South to industrial centers in the Midwest, Northeast, and West. Very good book. Highly recommend. Ruthie May never married, but gave birth to a daughter, Vernita, at 27. The father soon split, and Ruthie May remained bitter about men for the rest of her life. Don't Me blame too, her one Ruthie bit. May. Me too. She was a stout woman at 5'11 and 251 pounds at her death, so she was not a shrinking violet, Miss Ruthie May. Before her murder, Ruthie May was preyed on. Pastors from across the country, including Fort Lauderdale, Florida, would hit up the vulnerable woman for cash. She was raised in the Baptist church and believed that the faith could heal the sick. Perhaps she was looking for her own salvation from her mental health woes. Neighbors described her as testy and often dressed in dirty clothes. But in the months before the murder, she'd been turning a quarter. corner. She began studying for her GED, wearing clean clothes, and was almost pleasant by some accounts. I would have been best friends with Ruthie May. Yeah. She would have been she sounds so great. mean May. to me, but I would have loved every minute of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Two fellow Abbott residents, Edward Turner, who was 19 at the time, and John Hondras, 22, were arrested for her murder and later found not guilty in separate trials. Okay. What, what was the evidence against them? Did they have? Um, it what was did they have? 87. So the evidence was basically eyewitness snitching. Oh, yeah. And then, but right before the snitching, they were like, oh, nope, never mind. We're not, we're not going to actually testify. So it was was a fucking mess. And one did a bench trial. The other did a jury trial. It was a mess. 
Most of Chicago's housing projects, including the Abbott homes, were demolished in the last 15 years or so. The policies, however, have not been corrected. The Chicago Housing Authority's plan for transformation has largely failed at moving project residents into more integrated housing. And in the bougie neighborhoods, the plan for transformation is more like a plan for gentrification. And in this, the old school Candyman and the new millennium Candyman meet. While the 1992 film grappled with the subtle and not-so-subtle horrors of the projects through the lens of a white grad student, the 2021 film deals with the gentrification of more than just the physical spaces that Candyman haunted, told from the perspective of a black man who has been both gentrified and gentrifier, with the added backdrop of police brutality against men of color. Both movies are fantastic and I highly recommend them. Though the tragedy of Ruthie May has largely been lost to history, the urban legend born from her curious death leads preteens sleepovers in every corner of the nation to gather in bathrooms in front of the mirror and play chicken with the other side. Okay, girls, have you ever done it? I've not done Candyman, I've done Bloody Mary. Yeah, okay. me too. I have done Bloody Mary and we did do Candyman at one sleepover. Um, and I think because I was the witchy one of the group that we were protected. So that was that was the <laughs> that movie terrified me. So I would have if anybody said let's let's play Candyman, I would have been like, no. Yeah. <laughs> I would have called mama and said, Come get me. I'm not I'm not hanging I'm, out I'm, with I'm these not, people. I'm not about to fuck around and find out. <laughs> <laughs> and y'all know me. I'm like, let's go fucking do this shit. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go summon a demon. Um, did you and I'm gonna have the number wrong, but uh, did you know that Tony Todd uh, agreed to do use live bees in the scene? Yes, where he I had, shared he, that on my Facebook. Like last he got week. paid like a thousand dollars per sting. Yeah. Uh, Good for him. 20, he didn't have to go there. Yeah, he he yeah. went he went there. Yeah, that's awesome. Tony <laughs> Todd fit so OG Candyman, which I finally got Sheena to watch. She loved it, of course. <laughs> Because yes. it's amazing. Yep. Um, highly recommend. It's on Tubi for free. Just watch some ads. You'll mm -hmm. be fine. Um, everything's ad supported these days. Deal with it. And then the 2021 one, uh, perfect, beautiful, wonderful, amazing. It shot Chicago so well, so pretty. I have seen both of the sequels from the 90s. They're both terrible. So please don't. Yeah. Just. <laughs> Just save yourself a lot of, just save yourself that time. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Go see, go see the one in the theater. So it's amazing. Yay. That was, I had heard uh, about Ruthie May before. I think it was um, another podcast did a story or an episode on just the phenomena of hidden spaces and talked about how yeah well and my original intro to this so i had told you guys the story once um i moved into this apartment in late may early june building was built in 1920 so i'm sitting watching tv with the potato and her royal highness and mm -hmm. we're just chilling and i hear like music and i'm like where the hell's that coming from <laughs> And so I live in a studio apartment, but I've got a walk-in closet just off the bathroom. So I'm like, okay, it's coming from the closet. Did one of my alarms go off or something? 
I go in there. I can kind of hear it, but not really. And I'm like, you know what? If it's a haunting, it's a haunting. That's none of my business. I'm going to go back to doing <laughs> what I was doing. This is clearly, I was not willing to fuck around and find out that night. <laughs> so off and on, I would hear things. And so one morning I'm brushing my teeth and I distinctly hear somebody talking about Bitcoin. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> oh, God. If I'm haunted, discussing discussing Bitcoin, I'm like, if I'm being douchebags. Ha- exactly. Yeah. If I'm being haunted by a finance bro, I'm burning the whole world down. <laughs> like I'm I'm getting out of my lease. I'm not gonna do this. So I'm like listening, and then I realize it's coming through the medicine cabinet. So oh we shit, sh- yeah. So oh. on the other side of my medicine cabinet is my neighbor's medicine cabinet. <laughs> Where I can hear everything he does in the bathroom and he can hear everything I do in the bathroom. (laughs) So I happen to know that we both have to use the bathroom at the same time in the mornings, which is (laughs) kind of, kind of interesting. He has had to listen to me loudly sing the Red Hot Chili Peppers while I was drunk taking a bubble bath. Um, but I had to hear about Bitcoin, so I feel like we're even. <laughs> yeah, yep, for sure, for sure. So that is that is a Chicago apartment thing. Is if I wanted to pop out that medicine cabinet and like jump into his probably disgusting single guy bathroom, <laughs> I could. Well, I've told you all the story of Bathtub Man and Tupelo, oh, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> I love yeah. Bathtub Man. Yeah. So he wasn't even haunting me. He was just now, my neighbor. Yet you I need to you need to share the story. I don't know if you've shared it on the podcast yet. Okay. So back when I was living in Tupelo, um, I had this family move in right beside me, and I would be in my bathroom, like getting ready in the morning, and I would hear someone singing, and then you'd hear like a. Uh, and I was like what in the world and I figured it out it's my neighbor who is singing in the bathtub and those noises are him moving around in the tub it's his his butt butt. it's his butt (laughs) moving around in the tub to the bottom (laughs) and he loved to sing all kinds of things he had a pretty voice um but what was really funny was um I obviously did not call him bathtub man to his face that's what I called him in my head um he and his wife would fight sometimes and then the night after Whitney Houston passed I woke up and um they've been fighting a lot around that time and I woke up the next morning and you could hear them both singing the greatest love of all <laughs> and they never they never fought after that well, um okay what was really funny though was and this is a much longer story I should tell on here because it is hilarious my friend Spencer, who now in, enjoys his various methods of getting um, toasted, um, <laughs> at the time was a stone cold sober little chickadee, and we got him drunk for the first time ever. I didn't get him drunk. He decided sangria tasted great, and he drank like <laughs> ten bottles of like. Oh Jesus! Honey. He never so drank he sangria was, again after that, I bet. No, he won't. No. If I even mention the word sangria, he starts like wanting to puke. So <laughs> it eventually turned on him. So I take him back to my house and I'm trying to nurse him through his first bad puke. Yeah. yeah. 
And I'm like trying to keep his mind off of how bad he feels. So like, I literally tell him the entire plot line to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, <laughs> the show and Smallville. And I'm like, okay, and this is where we are at, you know, now in the show, blah, blah, blah. And he's just hurling and being miserable. But then we hear something next door. <laughs> And it's not bathtub man singing, but it's bathtub man making a noise. And so drunk Spencer screams out, bathtub man, what are you doing? Taking a bath? And then he hurls. <laughs> and I'm like, now my neighbor knows that I call him bathtub man because everyone in Tupelo just heard you scream that. <laughs> so um, I love it. I fun love times it. with bathtub man. So yeah, I, I am a fan of hearing my neighbor's music actually. Like I've had one up here where I could hear it through the vents or something. And I was like, and every day I would judge her like, oh, is this good music <laughs> or is this bad? But yeah. I'm a fan of that. Anyway, back to the spookiness. Bathtub yes. scary. Bathtub yes. man's fun. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. We'll move on to me, I guess. I'm going to close this out this week. Um, scare us, Lou Who. Yes. And so I am going to continue the theme of telling the true story that inspired a classic horror film that is easily in my top 10 favorite movies of all time. Derek, cue the music. However, in my story, our killer doesn't walk on two legs or even live on land. This killer lived at sea and over the course of two weeks in the summer of 1916 would kill four and maim one and eventually go on to inspire Peter Benchley to write a little book called Jaws in 1974, which went on to become a little movie of the same name that launched the career of a little-known director named Steven Spielberg the following year. Today, I am sharing The Man-Eater of Matawan. Ooh, Heck I yeah. love this one. Do it. Yes. All right, cut the music, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> cut so, the music. Our story begins on Saturday, July 1st, 1916. A 23-year-old Philadelphia stockbroker named Charles Van Zant decided to take a quick swim before dinner while on vacation in the resort town of Beach Haven, New Jersey. Why you would want a vacation in Jersey, I have no idea. But... I will defend New Jersey. Southern Jersey has really nice beaches. And I went to Long Beach Island and won a bunch of tickets at this like <laughs> big arcade. Um, and I got my grandma like a souvenir from there that she still had when she passed. Aww. And everyone figured out that I went to Ole Miss. So they kept asking me if I knew Eli. And I was like, no. <laughs> well no, we I sort of did we saw him on campus all the time you saw That's him true. in the doorway in his undies that one time too <laughs> oh, i still yeah. remember that story okay anyway Lori, moving on back to, your story, <laughs> back to charles van zant a few minutes after he entered the water he began shouting fellow beachgoers just assumed he was calling to a chesapeake bay retriever that he had been playing with on the beach but that was not the case his leg was being bitten by a shark. Yeah. He was rescued by two lifeguards who realized what was going on, but it was too late. Van Zant bled out from a severed femoral artery on the manager's Oof. desk at the Ingleside Hotel at 6.45 p.m. Aye, aye, aye. 
So this incident didn't cause much of a fuss. The beaches stayed open, um, even though sailors and ships that were going through the area had reported seeing a significant number of sharks swimming along the shoreline. Um, and things remained calm until Thursday, July 6th, when the second attack occurred 45 miles away in Spring Lake, New Jersey. Charles Bruder was a 28-year-old native of Switzerland who was working as a bell captain at the Essex and Sussex Hotel. While swimming about 130 yards out in the ocean, he was attacked. The shark nearly bit him in half. Oh, my God. And severed both of his legs. He was rescued by two lifeguards, but he was dead before they even reached the beach. Right. I imagine. Yes. So the death of Bruder is what really launched the panic of vacationers. Um, an article in the New York Times read, quote, the news that the man had been killed by a shark spread rapidly through the resort. And many persons were so overcome by the horror of Bruder's death that they had to be assisted to their rooms. In Lollard. My goodness. Um, and I mean, people were out on the beach when they're dragging his half-eaten body onto the shore. Yeesh. So I can imagine that was horrifying. Um, and according to Wikipedia, and yes, I know it's not the most reliable of sources, but just go with me here. The ensuing panic cost resort owners along the New Jersey shore an estimated $250,000 in losses, which is close to $6 million in today's money. Boy. So unlike the mayor of Amity (laughs) Island, they did put up mesh barriers around swimming areas across the shoreline and armed men did patrol in boats with guns. So, you know, you, you see in some similarities here Um, and shark experts, uh, they reassured everyone that a third attack was unlikely. Um, You know, they didn't know a lot about sharks at the time. And this actually kind of, uh, led to a new wave in how scientists studied sharks. Well, um, was there a theory he got bored? I don't know, <laughs> but these that it, it probably, you know, it was just an, you know, it may not have even been a shark. We don't know. We're saying it's a shark, but you, and I'll I'll get into that later, but uh these experts were wrong. Um, That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, so Wednesday, July 12th was the bloodiest of the days. Um, a retired fishing boat captain named Thomas Cottrell, uh, excuse me, Cottrell or Cattrell, it's been, I've seen it two different ways, was shot to see what he believed to be an eight to nine foot shark swimming up the channel into Matawan Creek. When he rushed to the town of Matawan to warn the residents, he was met with disbelief. Matawan was 11 miles from the shore. They didn't see any reason why they would have been at risk for shark attacks it was fresh water um, right they didn't know a little thing about bull sharks but yeah we'll get into assholes. that later <laughs> so across town 11 year old lester stillwell was thrilled to be let off his factory job early and God i know we damn. i know we are talking about sharks here but what the actual fuck was an 11 year old doing working a factory job that was I normal. Jesus. That I was did. Normal. I did see an article that he was at work with his dad, so I guess he just tagged along. But an eleven-year-old doesn't need to be at a factory. God no, damn. Anyway, was, I yeah. think that was the norm back then, though. Yeah. I'm pretty. Was he about to go take a shot of whiskey and complain about probably. his wife? Yeah, uh, probably. He did get let off early, so he and a few of his friends decided to cool off by going for a swim in the creek. 
they were splashing and playing and he uh wanted them to watch him float on his back and while they were <laughs> watching him float he was ripped under the water uh, he was bobbing up and down screaming at the top of his lungs his two friends jumped out of the creek and ran screaming for help help arrived soon in the form of 20 year old stanley fisher and arthur smith fisher and smith dove into the creek and they had assumed that lester must have suffered from a seizure he did have epilepsy so they're going in thinking oh he's drowning we have to get him out right what they- he had epilepsy and they were making him work at a factory yeah i mean who knows uh <laughs> welcome to what, america what right. they didn't know was that the shark was still attacking the young boy's body oh geez. fisher tried to pull lester's body away from the shark and in oh, the boy. process he received a bite in his right thigh Oof. he was rushed he lost lester's body and he was pulled out and rushed to monmouth memorial hospital but he would die shortly after arriving at 5 30 p.m now uh the other guy smith uh was injured i don't think he was bitten by the shark but he did receive an injury that required stitches um and they were not able to find the body of lester Stillwell. oh 30 minutes later and not very far down the creek, 14-year-old Joseph Dunn and his brother were sw- swimming in the creek after taking the train from New York City for the day. While getting out of the water, Joseph's left leg was grabbed by the shark. And after a vicious tug of war between Michael and the shark, oh. they were able to pull Joseph to safety. Oh. Thomas Cottrell, that very same retired fisherman who had warned the town of the shark, arrived in time to load the young man into his boat and get him to medical help. Thank his lucky stars that there were no arteries severed. Joseph's leg was amputated and he spent 59 days in the hospital recovering from his ordeal, but Mm. he was the only survivor of this attack. Wow. Wow. And so those attacks on July 12th instigated an even more frenzied cry to find the man eater. A mob of locals swarmed the creek with weapons and dynamited the hell out of it. Uh, In doing so, they were able to bring up the body of Lester Stilwell on July 14th. He floated to the service only 200 yards from where he was. Mm. Um, And what another thing I found interesting. So the day after the three attacks, um, Another man named George Campbell went missing after going for a swim at the mouth of Matawan Creek. I could only find one article from 1916 that mentioned his disappearance and making a connection, uh, but there's no record of his body ever being found. He's still missing, and it's assumed he either drowned or was eaten. Um, Somebody's wife was like, huh. Yeah, he was He was partying with friends, <laughs> went in for a swim, and never came back. My money's on the shark. He was, yeah. he was at the, the mouth of the, um, the, where the Creek flows into the ocean. Um, right. and the shark that was believed to be the, the villain in this story <laughs> was killed very close to where he went missing. So, okay. okay. Anyway. So over the next several days, a massive shark hunt that was described as the quote, largest scale animal hunt in history, 
end quote, began as men took to the sea to take out the man-eater. In fact, a reward of $100 per shark was awarded to anyone who would bring the head of a shark. And that's over uh, just about $2,500 in today's money. Oh, damn. Yeah. Uh, so multiple sharks that men claimed to be responsible were captured and killed, but many believe that the shark that was responsible for the attacks was killed by y'all are going to love this. He was a German American taxidermist. Oh boy. And, <laughs> and Barnum and Bailey lion tamer. Oh boy. Give it to na- me. <laughs> named Michael Schleiser on July 14th. Okay. It was a seven and a half foot, uh, a seven and a half foot, 325 pound great white shark that slight whatever slicer (laughs) claimed nearly sank his boat before he was able to dispatch it with an oar sound familiar (laughs) nearly sinking a boat or sinking a boat the shark was killed very close to the spot that george campbell had been swimming when he disappeared which is you know why i think he was probably eaten um Schleiser opened the shark's stomach and found 15 pounds of a fleshy looking material. And scientists did confirm that they were human remains. The attacks ceased and Schleiser stuffed the shark and had it mounted in a Manhattan shop. However, it's lost. No one knows what happened to it. (laughs) There is one surviving picture, which will be shared on our socials. It is not a very good picture. 1916, but I do have a picture of the shark's head. Somebody um, has a taxidermy shark head. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Who knows? So the general consensus is that Schleicher uh, shark, <laughs> shark was responsible. Um, but it is very unusual that a great white would be able to survive in fresh water. The only type of shark that is known to be able to move from fresh to salt water is the bull shark. Um, and there are some scientists who think that Schleicher's shark, God, <laughs> I sound like I have a lisp. Schleicher's that, that, shark. The, 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 the killed shark. Uh, the shark killed by Schleicher. There we are. I, it's, it's the name. It's his name. I can't, I can't do it. Uh, was not responsible for all of the attacks. Uh, that it had to have been a bull shark. And, you know, at first I'm inclined to agree because 11 miles in, that's pretty right. far for a great white to accidentally get stuck. Yeah. Okay. But y'all, this is the great part. So there, and then there are other <laughs> skeptics whose beliefs trump even those of the scientist. And I think would have made for a less scary or maybe more scary version of Jaws. And that is, I got to keep a straight face because this is going to crack you up. <laughs> they believe the attacks were the work of a sea turtle. A what now? You are me a sea turtle. I'm sorry. In a, is this a rabid sea turtle? Like what le- kicked off this sea this turtle? This guy who wrote this letter to the New York Times, his name was Barrett P. Smith, had a personal issue with turtles. He wrote, <laughs> quote, these creatures are of a vicious disposition and when annoyed are extremely dangerous to approach. And it is a common theory that Bruder may have disturbed one while it was asleep on or close to the surface. Well, quote. bitch, don't annoy him. No. You know what I mean, happened? He totally tried to like stick his dick in one's mouth. <laughs> oh my God. And it was like, I yeah, would no. not put up with this assault and just clopped that thing right off and he never got over it. 
Also, Finding Nemo made me believe that sea turtles were all stoners. So yes. I, I refuse to believe the no. slander. This this was. Sir, you tried to fuck a sea turtle, and I just need you to own that. Yeah, I was hoping the sea turtle might have offended his mother. Like, <laughs> I hear your mother. Yeah, is something easy. happened. This guy and this he did not like the sea turtles, and the New York Times were like, "Okay, we'll publish your your, your little letter." Um, now, I another, mean, I would have published that yeah, in a yeah. heartbeat. <laughs> another letter to the New York Times blamed the attacks on the Germans. You know, this is nineteen six. <laughs> Oh my god. They're, you know, getting ready for war. And so this letter said, quote, these sharks may have devoured human bodies in the waters of the German war zone and uh followed liners to this coast, expecting the usual toll of drowning men, women, and children. So the person who wrote this is just like the Germans just throwing dead bodies off the, their ships left and right. Willy-nilly, there's women, children, men. <laughs> and the sharks are eating the bodies, and that's what's causing them to come up to New Jersey and eat our people. Okay, but like sharks used to follow the slave ships across true. the ocean. Yeah. So I that, mean, yeah, that that, that is not is, unheard of. No, no, definitely not. And it, that very well could have been, you know, played a part in it. Not maybe not the Germans, but just uh, changing tides, changing patterns. Any, you yeah. Know, there's a lot of stuff that I'm not going to go into that could have led this shark yeah. to go into a freshwater channel and attack humans. Right. Um, you know, the general consensus of scientists is sharks don't bite humans on purpose. They bite you because they think you're a seal or right. something else. They do a, a test bite to see if you taste good. And unfortunately, because they are so big and have such strong teeth, one bite can kill you. So, right. yeah. You know, and we're just far too bony. Yeah, they they do not want to eat us. So these insane theories aside, many ichthyologists, which is a fancy way of saying a shark scientist, agree <laughs> that it is highly unlikely that a saltwater great white could have made it up the channel into the brackish Matawan Creek. And the attacks were most likely caused by a bull shark. Did the bull shark escape? Is he still out there? Yes. <laughs> However, shark scientist George Burgess, the director of the International Shark Attack File, because there is such a thing, of course, has the victims listed as the as killed and or attacked by a great white. And because the creek had a high enough salt content, he said that a smaller great white could have possibly made it up the creek. So, you know. No one knows, basically, is is the final final answer here. No one really knows. Um, Lester Stilwell and Stanley Fisher were buried on July 15th, 1916 at the Rose Hill Cemetery in Matawan. And I read an article that um, Stanley's grave actually sits on a hill and kind of overlooks where Lester is buried. So it's like he's watching over him even after they're they're gone. That's sweet. Charles Bruder was buried at the Atlantic View Cemetery in Manasquan, New Jersey. Hotel guests and some of his colleagues took up a collection that was sent to his mother, who was still living in Switzerland at the time of his hmm. death. Yeah. Charles, hmm. Charles Van Zant was buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia. And Joseph Dunn, the lone survivor, 
never publicly spoke of his attack. There was one person who has a little website that is in the show notes that did a ton of digging to try to figure out what happened to him. Um, he was able to discern that, uh, Joseph Dunn lived in the New York area for the remainder of his life and died at the age of 82 in April of 1982. Oh, he was buried at the St. Charles Cemetery on Long Island, but his grave is unmarked. Oh, so that's, you know, sad. So on (laughs) nice segue, Lori, (laughs) (laughs) anyway. On July 12th, 2016, 100 years to the day following the deadly attacks, a memorial honoring Stillwell and Fisher was dedicated at the site of the attacks. There's also a second memorial to the victims in Memorial Park at the center of town. And this town is tiny, like 8,500 people. So, Oh, yeah. And they're very nice. One is has brick around it, and the other one is granite. And they're both very nice monuments. Um, the town also held not a celebration it was like a commemoration of the events when they uh unveiled this monument um and you know a lot of people in the town are like we, we don't want to celebrate this people died but you know this is a crazy thing that happened here we need to right. kind of commemorate commemorate it in some form yeah. while being respectful to the people who died um there is also a mural of a shark on an arched railroad trestle that crosses the Matawan Creek and is just a few yards from the attack site that suddenly appeared in July of 2020. Well, that's um, rude. So <laughs> earlier this year, it was determined that the artist is a local construction worker who goes by the nickname Tattoo Bob. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. He is, yeah, he's not a tattoo artist. He's a construction worker, but he does not want to reveal his actual name because he doesn't want to get sued for, um, you know, illegally painting the mouth of a shark on this opening. And it's really cool little art. It's got the shark and the opening into the trestle is the shark's mouth. And then he has 1916 uh, spray painted oh, wow. beside it. So it's, it's nice. And, you know, I'll share a picture. Um, and that's it. That's the story that would inspire Peter Benchley to write and eventually regret writing Jaws. <laughs> I'll be completely honest. This movie terrified me as a child, uh, <laughs> but is absolutely one of my favorite movies. In fact, I know so much trivia about this movie. I could probably do an entire episode just about that. You know, we have a suspected murder victim who may have yep. been an extra, um, right. you know, um, Richard Dreyfus's character Hooper was supposed to die, but because they got such good footage of an actual shark attacking the cage that they decided to let him live. But I'll leave the rest of that for another time. So <laughs> the end. Well, Yay! and the story of the USS Indiana that Quint yes. tells is fucking horrifying. And, it um, is. And he was drunk as shit when they filmed that scene. Oh, I bet. He looked <laughs> he was, drunk as shit. Well, he was, that actor was a severe alcoholic. Yeah, don't, don't think say. He, I don't think he was sober for a scene in that movie, but yes, it, yeah. it was terrifying. And there, um, 
there's a show on Netflix called The Movies That Made Us. Yeah. And one of the seasons has an episode on Jaws. And it's just, there's a ton of documentaries because I mean, it was oh, just yeah. the most ridiculous movie and, and how it was so successful and all of the, the issues they had with Bruce the Shark. Just yes. really, really fascinating. So um, definitely check that out. I'm a nerd for movie trivia. Yeah. And um, I've seen a couple of documentaries about these shark attacks. Yeah. Yeah, you no, know they're, the original they're, ones they're, it's absolutely fascinating this is i mean this inspired and and it's sad because peter benchley wrote a t- several books about shark attacks there was one called great white there was one called beast i think in that one it actually was a squid was the monster but yeah he, he went on to regret writing these because it made people fear sharks and fear great white sharks in particular and yeah. that is part of the reason why you know, they're, I don't think they're endangered, but they're an at-risk species because so many people have hunted them. And then, you know, the, the Asian community in the market for shark fin soup is just, you know, that's also playing a role in it. But, um, anyway, I, like I said, I could go on a whole other episode (laughs) talking about nerding out about jaws and all the trivia. So we would leave that for another time, but that is, that is the story of the Madawan man-eater and the shark attacks of 1916 in New Jersey. Awesome. awesome. Yes, thank you. Good job, y'all. We love it. This, this was this was fun, lighthearted. Yeah. <laughs> it was, I guess as lighthearted as we can get. As yeah. we can get, y'all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's literally about cemetery. <laughs> yeah. There was so, yet again not a cemetery in mind, but again, die mad. It'll be all right. You know, this, this, we knew this wasn't going to be cemeteries and, you know, it's, it's our podcast. We don't, you know, it it, it is evolving as we go. Yeah, exactly. Either you stay for the bathtub man stories or (laughs) you die mad about it. So exactly. Yeah. Um, So Luhu, once again, please tell everyone where they can find us. Yes. You can find us on our social media channels. We're at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cemetery Row Pod. Or you can email us, cemeteryrowpod at gmail.com. And please be sure to check out Sheena's um, haunted, not haunted, true crime tour <laughs> of Elmwood Cemetery. Uh, yes. hit, us, hit us with the new di- the added date again. Uh, November 6th. Yes. Woo-hoo. And it is in the afternoon, so you have no excuse not to come. Yeah, it's and on Saturday. Can, yes, you can get tickets at Elmwood Cemetery social media sites or yep. elmwoodcemetery.org. Org. Yes. Perfect. Yes. So, yeah. Come thank on. you, everyone. I'm about to go uh, shoot some Afrin nose spray, and hopefully, I'll feel <laughs> better in the morning. <laughs> And uh, uh, we will be back in two weeks with more spooky yes. stories. Yes. Thanks, guys. Happy Halloween. Bye.